the hectic pace of Christmas kind of shows a little bit in greater relief, I think, our need for some respite, some need for some rest in our lives. It shows kind of the, the ongoing pressures of our lives just kind of get amplified a little bit more, and we need some respite. I think we need some right this very minute. So during the four weeks of Advent, we're reflecting on the rest that Christ offers us. And the first week, we talked about how Christ in Matthew 11 said that the gift that he is wanting to give us is rest and rest for our souls. And if ever there was a time when we would want to cash in that gift certificate, I think it's during Christmas. Last week we, we pivoted and we said we're going to be looking at the temptations of Jesus, the temptations in the wilderness where he shows himself to be the kind of king, the kind of savior who would come through on his promise to give us rest. And the text says that Jesus was led out into the desert wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And there are three temptations. The, the first one was an attempt to derail Christ's ministry by seeing if he would serve his own needs first, if he would kind of take care of number one first when he was being asked to turn stones into bread. And it's important that, that Jesus is the kind of leader who doesn't look after himself first. He looks to care for others. He's, he's primarily seeking to serve. He's the one who takes burdens off of us instead of the other way around. And so it's a reversal from the way that the world usually works. And we're going to stick with that theme or this, these, this text of looking at Jesus' temptations. Admittedly, this is a non-intuitive text for us to look at at Christmas. Or as Jay Denton, our regular worship leader, says, these are kind of semi-Christmas sermons. Uh, I'll stick with that. It's fine. I understand. Uh, but this theme is not so crazy after all because one of the things that we celebrate at Christmas is that God, that the Word became flesh, that God's Word became flesh and dwelled among us. So we're looking at this idea of God becoming hu human. It's this amazing reality. And of course, when he was a baby, that's part of that. We see the fragility of God that is willing to be weak and to need to be served as a baby. And we see that as well in his temptation. It's another place where we understand his humanity. I think oftentimes we, we emphasize one or the other more, his divinity, his God side, or that he is a human. But he's fully God, fully human. And we're looking a bit more at his humanity, the fact that he can be tempted. So the, the benefit of looking at his temptations, I think, is that we're going to be able to see some of, of him as a leader. And we can see that he's a leader who isn't needing to receive from us, but he's willing to give to us. And he's the one who can give us rest for our weary souls. So if you have ever been tired, if you have felt pressed upon, even if you've ever just felt hungry, the beautiful thing that we see and understand is that our Lord knows what that feels like. Not just in a theoretical way, but he himself has experienced these things. And it changes the way that we would interact with our high priest, this one who would stand in for us. Jesus knows what it's like to need a little bit of respite. And he's the one who is interceding for us. In this temptation narrative, we see some of the sources of our daily pressures. These pressures are the opposite of rest. Uh, we, we have these things that we fear. We fear whether we're going to have what we need for the day. Uh, we fear whether we're going to go into suffering and whether we'll have pain. We fear sometimes if we're going to feel like maybe we're in, in this life all alone. 
Those are all things that he himself was experiencing. And it's going to help us to know that our Savior knows what we feel. Well, at Christmas, our to-do lists do get a bit longer. There's definitely a time crunch here. It, as compared to other times of year, like a lot of other times of the year, there's some stuff that you can just kind of put off till next month. But if that thing that's on your list is to buy a present for somebody, that's not something we're going to be able to put off till next month. So with all the good feelings and everything that's wonderful with Christmas, there is a certain amount of we need to get some things done right now that happen to us. There's this pressure to have things done right now that's on us. So where, where can we have some relief from that? Where can we get some relief from this right now kind of pressure? Well, Jesus, he felt this same kind of pressure for right now. Sometimes for good things, sometimes for not so good things. It's going to, it's going to help us to see how he handles a specific situation of having this right now pressure. And we're going to be able to think about how he's going to be able to offer us some rest for our souls. So we're going to look this morning in Luke 4. If you, if you have a Bible with you or a Bible app, you can open it to Luke, Luke 4. We're also going to show some of those verses up above for us. But, and there are always Bibles in the back on the little bookshelf back there. And you can grab one of those. Luke is in the New Testament toward the back of your Bible, chapter 4. We're going to read from verses 5 to 8. So, like I said, he's already out in the desert. He's be facing this temptation. He's been fasting for a long time. He's hungry. And now in verse 5, it says this, Luke 4, verse 5. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. When we read this, we might be tempted to think that this is, that there is a kind of a dual temptation that maybe Jesus is tempted to power and to worshiping the devil in this, or submitting to the devil. But I think the power in itself was not actually a wrong thing for Jesus to desire. You and I, we are not meant to rule the nations. That's not our job. But being, it's because that's not for us. But being offered these things for Christ, that is what he was actually intended to do. That's his, his role. Christ was the one who was intended to possess the nations. He's the rightful ruler. And Satan is promising to Jesus what everyone kind of expected the Messiah to do, that he would be the one who would rule the nations. He would be the king of kings. It's the same kind of stuff that's actually promised in Scripture. Psalm 2.8 says this, Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance the ends of the earth, your possession. God is promising to this Messiah that they will have the nations and the whole earth. And, and as we read the Gospels, the Gospels are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are the biographies of Jesus' life in the New Testament. We see that Jesus' preferred name for himself is the Son of Man. And he chooses that title very purposely. It's an identification with people. I am a human. I am a son of man. But it also derives specifically from a passage in Daniel, in Daniel chapter 7. And there is, uh, there is it's a messianic name. It's a name that is attached to the, the Messiah who was to come. So he calls himself this. And in this vision that Daniel has, there's this person who's kind of a human and divine person who is there, and look, listen to what is promised to this human divine person. Go ahead and put that up. 
in my vision at night, I and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So this Messiah was meant to have a kingdom. He was meant to have that where all the nations and people of every different language were gathered together under his rule. So the point of the temptation isn't actually that part about the power. I don't think that's the temptation part in this, to be this king of kings. That's what the Messiah was meant to do. But what it is, is an offer to have the right thing via the wrong means. He he, if he goes there, if he becomes the ruler of the world in this way, he's going, to, he's going to have it in a way that would drive a wedge between himself and the Father. And if he does it that way, it's going to spoil his whole reign. It would be devastating. It, you might even wonder, why, why is this actually even a temptation? Like, why, why would Jesus, the Son of God, who's promised to have all the nations of the world, why would he have any kind of temptation to worship Satan and worship the devil right here? He, he, it seems crazy. The nations are already supposed to be his possession. And I think that is the question that we are supposed to be asking because clearly the text sets it up that this is the thing that is tempting Jesus for him to give in to that. And the reason that it's a temptation is that it's about the way that he would take possession of the nations, the way that he would start his time of rule. Because the devil's lie to him is this. He says, you don't have to suffer and die to become king. You don't have to walk the path of humiliation and rejection and suffering to receive authority. Here is another way, an easier way for you to do it, to still become king. And when we see it that way, we can see that it might be a little bit tempting. Suffering, rejection, and death on the one hand, or maybe just getting those what you want the easy way. Immediate gratification. And, and I, I get that. How many of us haven't ever been lured by instant gratification? We want things right now. And, and this temptation here to have it immediately, the things, maybe even sometimes things that are good, or maybe sometimes things that are not good, but we want them immediately. That temptation is the root of a lot of other things. Stealing, of adultery. Now, Jesus says this in Matthew 15, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. It's, it's this root of things that want to reach out to to have things now, to, to have it in our time and in our way. And, and you and I, we know what the world would look like if Jesus gave in to these things. Because this is kind of the picture of what the world looks like now. His leadership would end up, if he became king by those means, his leadership would look like every other leader that's ever been in the world. It would be a life of ambition that doesn't mind trampling on other people to get where it's going. It would create injustice. It would create oppression. That Satan's way of using power has resulted in a world where people are seen as commodities, where, where might makes right. 
And if Christ gained power by that way, he would have spoiled his leadership and he would have just been one more despot in the world. If you're, if you're familiar with the story or the movies of the Lord of the Rings, I think that J.R.R. Tolkien, the author of that, I think he was thinking, he may have even been thinking of this very temptation when he, when he talked about the ring of power. There's this ring of power that if you have it, you have immediate power over other people. But it's interesting, throughout the whole story, all of the wise people know that they can't use it even once. Because if they access this power, it's going to turn them, and it's going to be used for evil. Over and over again, people are, they are seduced by it. They want to use this power. But if they're really wise, they say, I can't even touch this thing. Because the ring of power is to, is to take a shortcut to power. So Jesus couldn't, he, he would not, and he could not divorce the, the method of becoming leader from his ongoing way of living as a leader. The way that he achieves it can't be separated from his end. The, the ends don't justify the means. The means of getting there would end up spoiling it and shaping what it meant for him to be king. Because the right way for Jesus to achieve it, the way that he was going to achieve it was going to be opposite of the way that every other leader has ever done it. He was going to give his life for his people. It was going to come through his own death. And so in a way, you can kind of say Jesus isn't really wrestling with the devil or a physical devil. He's wrestling with his own natural desire to want to choose an immediate and a kind of softer, easier way to, get, to avoid pain and suffering. That is the voice of the devil. And that I can really understand. There are a lot of times when I'm, I'm tempted to want to take what seems like the more the easier or the more immediate way. And we, we even talked about that maybe some months ago when we talked about taking revenge. It's a similar thing. Well, how does Jesus end up resisting this temptation? Just like other temptations, Jesus doesn't argue with him. He just quotes scripture. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And when I think about this battle that's probably going on inside of him, I think Jesus, when I first think about it, I think it's, it sounds kind of like a silly thing, like, hey, it's better to worship God than Satan, which doesn't, that's not, that doesn't make a lot of sense. But I, th I think actually in some ways he maybe is even speaking to his own heart. He's saying this. He says, no, you will worship the Lord and you will serve him only. He's not necessarily even saying it to Satan. He's saying it to his own heart. You will worship the Lord and serve him only. And the unspoken part of that is, you're going to do that in the whatever way that he tells you to do it. And maybe it's through the path of suffering. So what hangs in the balance here, in this temptation, is will Jesus choose to do it in God's way, or will he choose to do it in his own way? Will he choose to do it in God's way more than any other desire that he might have? There was an early Christian thinker called St. Augustine who said that, that sin is ultimately a, a lack or a, a lack of proper love, either for God or for our neighbor, a lack of proper love. And in fact, he ends up specifically saying it was a, a wrong order of love. So we have a disordered love. And he famously states this, he says, the essence of sin is disordered love. 
So he believed that the, the problem wasn't necessarily always that we want the wrong thing, but that we want it in the wrong order that it should be in our life. And, and we've seen that kind of thing in our own lives. We recognize it when it's in somebody else, right? We see somebody who maybe even started wanting to work hard because they wanted to be able to take care of their family. But sometimes a job ends up taking a whole nother dimension where the family gets sidelined and somebody's work ends up taking more importance than the family. We would recognize that as disordered love. You're loving work more than family. Those are not in the right order. And so Christ has a goal that he will be the one to rule the nations. Yes, that's part of it. But even accomplishing that mission was second to his connection with the Father. And what the Father was sending him to do was actually to, to atone for the sin of the world. It wasn't just to lead. He was supposed to be the leader who had taken care of everybody else, who had given his life for them. So we get in trouble when our love ends up in disorder, out of the order that it's supposed to be. Uh, we, sense it, we sense it pretty naturally. Uh, but, but things still tempt us. We, we end up easily swayed to put smaller things as more important than the big things. We run into that when we, we run into obeying God versus the way that we feel, the way that we, we want to go. So there's a lot of different temptations, places where we choose power over humble service like Jesus is calling us to, where we choose right away rather than faithfulness. Uh, you know, we, we say that we want to be people who tell the truth, but sometimes we think, ah, but, you know, if I tell the truth, if I say it right now, but this can be really inconvenient. Or, you know, I'm going to have to explain myself, or I'm just going to look really bad. It's just a little easier to kind of fudge over the truth on this thing. We get angry, maybe over insignificant things. I, I find, if I'm, if I'm being truthful, the times, oftentimes I get angry with my kids, not because they're necessarily doing something really bad. It's because they're doing something where I feel embarrassed. And that's different than loving my kids, right? That's actually kind of loving my, my reputation or my, what I want people to perceive me as. That's a disordered love. My, the way that I'm perceived should be lower than my love for my kids. And Jesus, though, is setting the order of his loves correctly. He, he's putting God first, and he says he's accepting to go where the Father wills him to go, no matter what that means for him. And, and he's not just saying that. He's not just saying that he will do that. His life ends up reflecting the words that he says. It's a, it's a huge moment. He's, going, he's accepting to rest in God's will, to, to rest his soul, that he will be in his, in his identity as the servant king. Not a king where everyone serves him but where he is the servant in chief. And it's, that's really upside down from the way that the rest of the world works. And for us, for, for those of us who are Jesus followers, we are called to follow our king in the way of service. We are supposed to do the same thing, not just to say things about God, but as Christ followers, we're supposed to look like we're following Christ. We're supposed to actually look different because of it. There's a, there's a famous moment where a couple of Jesus' disciples come to him and ask to be given uh, the sp spots as kind of his two chief deputies. Well, that's not really actually it. Actually, what happened was their mom came up 
to ask for their spot to be the two chief deputies for that. You look at the bulldozer parent thing has existed before, right? Hey, Jesus, I just want to want you to give my kids a spot in this thing. So that idea has been around for a long time. But Jesus says, hey, 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 that's not how it works. That's not the way that the system works in this stuff. And the other ten disciples hear about this. They get pretty upset. Like, wait, probably because they're like, I should have thought of that first, right? They're kind of upset. Um, Jesus, he sees it as a teaching moment. This is in Matthew 20. Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus says, it's not just me who's supposed to do this. If you're my follower, you need to follow me. So, and for Jesus, the path to greatness is not up, but down. It's serving. It's not to be served, but to serve. And he didn't only teach it, but he lived it. Chuck Colson, who is the founder of Prison Fellowship, once said, I know that all the kings and queens of this earth have sent people to die for them, but I only know of one king who ever died for his people. To be a Christian means that we should follow Jesus. And it requires us to face the same kinds of decision, the same kind of temptation that Jesus faced. Oftentimes in America, our desire is kind of the, 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 the environment we swim in is people, whether they say it out loud or not, that we, we want to have kind of the best possible life with the least amount of pain. I think that's probably a pretty fair description of what we want out of life in America best possible life with the least amount of pain. But that is an example of disordered love because we are putting success and comfort above even love for other people because it's uncomfortable sometimes to care for other people. We're putting success or comfort above our love for God and our commitment to follow him because sometimes it's going to be uncomfortable. It means that, that I have to let people into my space and that's uncomfortable. It means I have to even give some of my resources, my time or my money or my, my, my worry for them even or my concern for them, my prayer. It means accepting some discomfort. But our Christian behavior should not be informed by the patterns of the world, but by the sacrificial love of Jesus. That's supposed to be the part that drives us. Not whatever everybody else is doing, but what Jesus was doing that's supposed to drive us. So as Christians, we should be boldly following our Savior down the ladder, down to service, humbly serving other people. And the problem is that we've kind of given in to the voice of the devil a little bit too often on this issue, whether individually or as a whole church. As individuals, we just want things very quickly, and I, I do. It's a normal human trait. We, it's obvious in toddlers. It's, you still see it in grown-ups pretty often. Uh, I think sometimes, uh, sometimes I think I, I love the next day or immediate delivery service, but sometimes I think it, it's not really helping my soul with that whole delayed gratification thing. Uh, somebody else told me they said that they had, they had ordered something at night, and in the morning he got up and it was at his door. 
He said, this is not helping me to delay my gratification, uh, that we get these things right away. Uh, what we need to do is, in, in a larger spiritual sense, kind of to do what some of us did this last week, that we, people who participated in the fast, I, that was probably not very easy. Uh, in part because you're, you're putting off something that's actually a natural desire or a natural need for your body and saying, no, 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 I'm going I'm to put that off for a while. And it, it's, it's fighting something that's very natural, but there is something a bit more spiritual about it as well. You're, you're consciously deciding to purposely delay a natural desire. And we said to our bodies and we say to our souls, hey, not, not right now. You have to be a little patient. And I, I got to tell you, telling my body to wait was a bit revealing. It was revealing in a lot of ways. I, re I realized that I snack more often than I thought. And not when I'm hungry, just because I'm bored or I'm walking past the Cheez-Its. No. This message brought to you by Cheez-It. Yeah. Yeah. But it, I think it also brought... Uh, it brought out some, some deeper things. It revealed some things in my life. Uh, it revealed uh, roots of self-protection. I, I could see my own deception. I, I could see the pride in my life. It was not wonderful to see those things. But I, and I realized that I sometimes kind of cover it up with the normal pace in my life. I don't want to see those things. But if you want to grow in your faith... This is what N.T. Wright, uh, writer says this. He says, one of the most important jobs for us as Christians is this, is to learn to recognize the voices that whisper attractive lies and to distinguish them from the voice of God and to use the simple but direct weapons provided in Scripture to rebut the lies with truth. That's what Jesus did. He, he, didn't, he didn't come up with some big complex thing. He just said, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So we can rebut those lies simply. That's what N.T. Wright is telling us we can do. I, I think that we also not only listen to the lies individually, but we listen to them corporately as a church. We can admit that we, we sometimes have disordered love. As, as churches, we, we care about being comfortable rather than whether we're actually worshiping God, uh, whether we're uh, really actually serving him. I, I, I want... I want to sing the songs I want to sing, but is that, am I caring for somebody next to me? Those are all problems. And can we just admit that during the 2020 election, that people on both sides of this, I'm not picking on any particular person, but churches lean, leaning toward one or the other kind of went all in on one thing or the other. And I think it ended up hurting the church's witness in the world. Because we, 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 we heard the attractiveness of something. Maybe we want a certain end. But we said we're willing to kind of put our, throw all of our, all of our weight behind one thing or the other. And I think it ends up hurting us. We, we, we're seeking power by any means necessary. And it sounds a lot to me like this temptation. The church is not here to win. Just the opposite. By every human measure, the Savior lost. And he lost on purpose, with a purpose. That's a quote from a very spicy and cutting book that I read this last week by a pastor named Andy Stanley. Um, and he was relating and talking about the churches in America specifically of our posture toward politics. And his book is called Not In It to Win It. I definitely recommend it. He, uh, don't worry, it's not going for any one particular one. He is an equal opportunity offender in this book. Uh, I, I love that he says, he says, whether you are, are, you are concerned about the 
heartless Republicans or whether you're worried about the godless Democrats taking over, He's kind of going after everybody. If that's the thing that we're worried about, oftentimes we worry more about that thing than whether I am serving my neighbor, whether I am connected with somebody who is different from me. And here's a quote that he says in here. This, uh, like I said, it's kind of spicy. He says this, the moment our love or concern for country takes precedence over our love for the people in our country, we are off mission. When saving America from whichever side you want to save America from, diverts energy, focus, and reputation away from saving Americans, we no longer qualify as a gathering of Jesus followers. We're merely political tools, a manipulated voting demographic, a photo op. We lose our elevated position as the conscience of the nation. We give up the moral and ethical high ground. End of quote. And I'll, get, I'll add that we're not just giving up high ground. We're, we're giving in to the voice of the devil. So there are, are there issues that matter? Yes. Are there issues that matter? Yes. Let's be clear about that. I don't want you saying, Kurt says we shouldn't vote. I think we should vote. We need to be people who vote, but we approach our politics from the perspective of our Savior, that we allow not our politics to view, change our view of Jesus, but allow our view of Jesus to change our politics and the way that we approach it, that we should be people who would serve even our enemies, that we would be people who would care for other people in such a way that Christians look different. I heard somebody say that it wouldn't it be wonderful if, if politicians got upset about all the Christians who just didn't fit into their, uh, their political stance, all these resistant Christians who just keep voting in a way that doesn't quite fit the party platform, wouldn't that be wonderful? Whichever way that is, that we would be people who are not motivated out of fear, but are motivated out of our Savior's driving need for us to serve our neighbor, even if sometimes it means we step down lower than what we deserve. It's the same voice as telling us, we should give in and act now. We have to, if you lose your power, you're going to give it up forever. You should... It doesn't matter if you turn a little bit to the dark side, right? Because this other thing is there. But Jesus says, worship the Lord and serve him only. We, we don't worship power. We worship a Savior who gave himself up for the world. And that's going to mean sometimes that we're going to look a little different than other people around us. It's going to mean sometimes we're willing to even lose for the sake of the kingdom. Because our job is to win Americans. We want people to come to faith, whether they agree with us politically or not. And I will say, ultimately, our goal is that our church doesn't look the same politically. There are people of lots of different political stripes in here. I've talked with you, right? Uh, what I want, what we should have, we should be able to celebrate that the thing that connects us is, is our common connection to the same Savior. Not that we agree on everything else. We, we are connected not by our, where we fit politically, where we fit even socioeconomically, whatever our history is, whatever our, our background, where we were born, what we are connected by is our Savior. Amen. So here's our uh, crazy idea that I want us to take away. Uh, I think that there is a rest that Jesus wants to offer you, that we don't have to be driven by the 
by whatever politics are going on, whatever the outrage is of the moment. We don't have to go at the pace of the world, but that we would be people who are choosing in love to care for the people around us immediately, the people here, the, the, our actual neighbors. We're, we're going to have less fear of losing. He's going to take that away from us. We don't have to fear losing. In fact, we don't have to fear other people passing up, not other, other people, not other groups. We're not going to be afraid of admitting our faults. We can be people who can be free to look dumb because we know we kind of are a little bit. And we don't have to pretend anymore. I, we, it's hard work to keep up all of our appearances of seeming perfect, and we're not doing a very good job of convincing other people that we are. So let's, let's take this path of servant leadership wherever it will take us. And sometimes it's going to be a bit countercultural. It's going to be hard for us to do that. And so it, it's hard to say that it's resting, but in a way it is resting. Jesus got to rest from hearing the voice of Satan in his head. And too many of us, we, we've got that one in our head instead of the voice of God who's calling for us to belong to him. We, we can rest from needing to fear. We can rest from needing to win. We can rest from having things go our way. So you don't have to win. You don't have to win as a, you don't have to win Christmas. Um, you don't have to win parenting. You don't have to win in politics. You don't even have to win in golf. Jesus never promised you that you would. He didn't even call you to it. But what he did call for you to do was to follow me. He gave up his life as a ransom. And I think that if we live in that, it's going to be restful for our souls because we're not trying to run at the pace of the world. We're coming to our Savior who wants to give to us. Let's rest in that. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that we will be bold and courageous that, that when we, we will be able to recognize that voice that's telling us to go a different way, but that we will be able to choose into the hard way of following you, that we will be people who are transformed by you. And the, the news is we are never, we're, we're never going to get it perfect. We are going to give in. But we've got a Savior who gave his life for us because he knows that we aren't going to win, that he is the true one who did it right, and we follow you. Thank you for your forgiveness in our lives for the times we get it wrong. We pray that we, together, will look more like you, that your church will look like a serving body of people willing to go down to the dirt to serve the people around us. We pray in Christ's name.